know, I, uh, I heard somebody drumming on the, the pew back there. That's awesome. I just want to tell you um, the way we express worship to God in form of song uh, is, varies in so many different ways. So some people like to raise their hand to God. Some people like to just listen. Some like to sing. Some like to bang on the pew, and that's pretty sweet. So I just want to give you guys freedom as, as we worship and gather here, that you have freedom to, to lean in uh, however your heart needs that today. So really, really uh, excited to keep worshiping with you guys here today. So uh, you guys have heard of the, the acronym GOAT, right? Is it acronym? I think it's acronym, right? GOAT, so greatest of all time. Um, the, the GOAT debates are fun. I think, I think they're fun. It's fun to pretend like you care when you really don't <laughs> or just take the opposing view just for fun. Um, I get hooked into, like, sports GOAT conversations a lot. So, like, the Michael Jordan or LeBron James debate. I know that this matters to some of us more than it probably should, um, but what's more intriguing to me with the GOAT uh, uh, comparisons is when people spend their entire adult lives developing skills to become the greatest at extremely strange things. Uh, take Joey Chestnut, for example. Um, he has the record for eating 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Oh, have you ever watched one of those? I mean, I like hot dogs. And I think maybe our daughter is on her way to becoming the new champion because she can throw down three of them and she weighs like three pounds right now. But, oh man, uh, Joey Chestnut though, he, he, so he's the world record holder. And I think that this, this brother should be given an award for that name though, Joey Chestnut. His last name is Chestnut. I'm so jealous of how cool that name is. Wouldn't you love to have that? That's the greatest last name of all time. Uh, no, no debates there, but... Everyone has their, uh, their GOAT category, um, if you're tracking with me. The debate that they care about, um, the rankings, the things you're curious about. And sometimes it's like half sarcastic and half serious, like the, the examples I gave. Uh, and maybe for some of you, you actually care about the greatest actual GOAT. So I've got a little diagram here on like the different breeds of GOATs. Um, you can take a quick picture of that if you want, but... Um, just kidding. Uh, there's something inside of all of us, though. Um, I, had, I sure had fun Googling, like, goat breeds <laughs> in my sermon preparation this week. I have a very weird job. Um, but there's something inside of all of us, uh, depending on the category here, that um, wants to know who's the best. Um, why does being great matter so much to us? Uh, what makes someone great? I mean, for Joey Chestnut, he's just got to eat more hot dogs, right? But, like, what really makes somebody great? What, what do you think makes somebody not great? Ooh. Like, it's like the standard that you have when you look at the person in the mirror. You kind of project that onto everybody else, too, right? So that's really convicting to me as I, as I sometimes struggle with that question. What, what is greatness? What is success? And why are we afraid of... Maybe not being great. Um, today, we're starting a new mini-series in our journey through the book of Matthew, the testimony of, of Matthew about Jesus' life. Uh, this would be, I think, a four-week thing uh, where we're doing a mini-series called Honest Questions People Ask. And uh, you can see where we're going today. We'll take a look today at uh, a question that the disciples asked Jesus, just straight up was who is the greatest, who's the goat? (laughs) 
And uh, the way that we define greatness, um, as I've already kind of alluded to here, has really important implications for other very important parts of our lives, our value, our identity, our comparisons, our self-esteem, our level of humility or pride, our relationships to, with God and other people, like a lot of it centers around what you think greatness looks like, or what you think success looks like. And this is especially true in some ways in the Christian life. Like what does it look like to be a, a great Christian? So this is a really important question in, in true Jesus style. When he's asked this question, he answers in a, a pure genius sort of way. So let me pray again and we'll jump into our text today looking at that question. Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to talk up here. You could have picked anybody in this group to be up here to get to speak, but um, it's my turn and I'm thankful for it. And I pray that uh, I will communicate what you want us to hear today. Um, I'm sitting at your feet listening to what you say too, Lord. Um, this isn't Jordan hovering above this group. It's us seeking you together. So I pray that you will, uh, I know you're speaking. I pray that we'll just have the ears to hear. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to be in two sections of uh, Matthew chapter 18, uh, the book of Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then 12 through 14. And just a quick disclaimer, you'll notice that there's some stuff in uh, verse 6 through 11, and I'm not avoiding that because it's got some tricky language to it. Um, I just want to stay focused on the, the, the single vein that I'm talking about here today. So I just wanted to give you that, that footnote that Jesus says some incredibly difficult stuff there that uh, we're not supposed to take literally. So just if you read it, you'll, you'll see why. Um, and certainly if you have a study Bible, as we've been giving those out, you, you can see that in the notes there too to, to see what the metaphor is. But uh, we're going to be in 1 through 5 for the first part and then uh, 12 through 14 for the second part. So it says this, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked... Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're asking him, who's the goat? Expecting Jesus to, to give them the name of some big, huge Bible hero or uh, maybe a whole bunch of uh, characteristics about obeying the law perfectly. But Jesus does this surprising turn. He called, verse 2, he, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And another, uh, Luke's version, I think, says, uh, place the child on his lap. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh. Unless you become humble like a child. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, we're a little bit more used to the dignity and value and even human rights of children uh, in our world today. But in the ancient world, uh, kids, uh, not surprisingly, because things were just different back then, uh, children were viewed as half humans. And sometimes they feel like that, too, <laughs> if they're screaming at you for no reason, um, but uh, they're often viewed as half humans until they hit puberty, 
Um, ask your parents what that word means. Uh, then, depending on whether the child was male or female, they were then viewed with a different set of values there too, right? So if you were female, you were able to marry and give birth. And if you were male, then they were of the age to begin the process of taking over the family business. But still, in both cases, they're, they're low on the, on the, the social spectrum, of that time. They, they didn't have high status. So for the disciples, as I said a minute ago, it's, it's likely that when Jesus, they're anticipating Jesus's answer to be something like uh, a big, strong hero of the past, a military leader, King David, uh, someone like that, that's like, you got to be like that in order to like be great. You got to have warrior strength. You got to be able to knock down a giant. You got to be able to sling a sword. That, that's the paradigm that these disciples would have had when they asked Jesus that question. Again, that's why it's so, it, he flipped it, and it feels just as strange today as I think it would have then, right? Jesus flips their understanding of their thinking on its head and offers a picture of one of the least valued people in society and makes that the level of greatness. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright, who I quote uh, fairly often because he's a great thinker. Um, he says, the weakest, the most vulnerable, least significant human being you can think of is the clearest possible signpost to what the kingdom of God will be like. God's kingdom, the future when heaven rules earth, won't be about the survival of the fittest. It won't be about the result of some long evolutionary process in which the strongest, the fastest, the loudest, and the angriest get to the front ahead of everyone else. Which still is often what the pattern feels like, right? If you're the loudest, if you're the strongest, if you're the most confident, then you get to the top. You get first place. It's the GOAT debate, right? What am I looking at when I'm looking at LeBron, James, and Michael Jordan? Their accomplishments. And it, it feels so obvious to us, right? Well, therefore, they are the best basketball player. And in some sense, it's not wrong to be good at things. But when we take that idea to the extreme, it would appear that Jesus is presenting a completely different idea of what greatness in his kingdom looks like. It's not just the amount of confidence or strength you have, it appears to be pointing more to humility. Last week, uh, my friend Nino, what's up, cuz? Uh, she took one of the, the study Bibles that we give here every week. We got one more available. John took the other. That's a good idea to do it before the service. That's nice. So uh, we got another study Bible right there. And, and uh, she took one last week and it was pretty sweet because she texted me a couple of different times and is like, man, this study Bible is sweet. Like I can... I guess I'm like a walking commercial now for study Bibles. I don't work for Zondervan or anything. I just think they're really good. But um, a couple of different times is like, man, like this, this, I really am beginning to understand it when I thought that was pretty sweet. So I, I put it to work. I gave you some homework then. I thought, well, why don't you write my sermon for me? <laughs> so uh, why not let a young person share what they learned? You know, thinking of Jesus's paradigm shift, you know, we can learn great things from young minds and young hearts. So uh, gave Nino the passage that we'd be talking about today, the one that I just read. And I wanted to, like, I wanted to hear her thoughts because I respect you and I think you got a big heart and now you have a tool to use, right? So she, I got her permission to do this, right? So we, we talked talk, talk about this. But the theologian Nino says this. 
She says, okay, so the first verse, the disciples were curious about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who would be number one. So Jesus interrupts the question by using children as an example. And children back then, I didn't tell her this, but children back then were seen uh, as low status, which shows that the kingdom isn't about who is the greatest or about competing for a position. It made me think about how fair God is. He doesn't love one more than the other. No matter the things we did, he doesn't say that one is greater than the other. It's like the commandments. If you break one commandment, the Bible says that you've broken them all. So sin is sin, and there is no such thing as a little sin or a big sin. In this world, there are so many different statuses that we put on each other, but God sees past that and looks into our hearts. He doesn't care who's the richest or who has the most of anything. He looks for those who are willing to change their ways and serve him. That's a set, thank you, yeah. That's a 17-year-old girl, woman, whichever you prefer, picking up her Bible and genuinely wanting to know what God has to say to her and to us. And like Nino pointed out, theologian Nino, our ranking and social statuses that we construct, uh, no matter how real and significant they feel, what Jesus is saying here is that they're, they're actually an incorrect way to view humanity, that he, he looks for something different. Jesus is naming the clearest kingdom characteristic that we can aim towards is humility and simple trust. It's not simplistic. It's not childish, but you've heard the phrase childlike. There's something beautiful and profound about the trust and dependence that a child has on their parent or their guardian. And you see it in other ways. I gave my son a hug the other day um, because he had done something really sweet for his sister. He alternates between something terrible and something sweet, as all children do, right? So I'm not, I'm not at all trying to give a pitch for children having all the answers here because they are sinful by nature too, but... I, I said to him, he had done something so sweet, and I, I got down on my knee, gave him a big hug, said, buddy, you are the best brother in the whole world. And he laughs, goes, dad, uh, I'm not the best. Everybody is the best brother in the world. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense, but yeah, you're right, buddy. <laughs> you got to correct him in those times, right? Because he's got to get, you know, technically right. But Jesus redefines humility, excuse me, redefines greatness in terms of where humility and trust might be found. So maybe that sort of thing is what Jesus is talking about. When a child gets it, and they don't get it all the time, right? But when they get it and you see it, and I know you've seen it, you, you look at that and go, there's something really profound about that that I need to return to. <laughs> as an adult who has apparently a more mature mind, there's something simple. You see it on the playground sometimes, the compassion that children have. Jesus is calling us back to that sort of simple love and simple humility. But he does something else, uh, Jesus does, um, with this idea of um, 
he calls them the little ones, right? Um, the, the, the children, he brings them right to the center of the conversation as far as what greatness looks like so that we can all aspire to l- lower ourselves, which is not at all undignifying. It's actually just the truth that we recognize that, I mean, our position compared to God is so low and there's nothing too great that we can do that impresses God all that much. But greatness defined by him is humility. So Jesus did something else a few verses later after he had established that each person in the kingdom of heaven is equally valued by God and that God is, uh, says he opposes the proud, but he draws near to the humble. God demonstrates how much he loves each one then. So he he clears the table and says everybody is has equal value, essentially. He reaches to the bottom of society, quote, and says greatness looks like that, and it's dependence on God. So verse 12 then says this, classic, classic passage here. It says, what do you think? He's telling a little parable here now. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look? for the one that wandered off. Now that's a little jarring already, isn't it, right? Like why would you, assuming there's one shepherd, why would you leave 99 on the hillside just for one? Doesn't, that doesn't make sense. But verse 13, he says, and if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So not only does Jesus bring the standard of greatness, and this isn't just some corner, like he's defining reality for us. Greatness according to the creator of the universe. Not just the subculture called Christianity, but From the heart of God, greatness looks like this, down to the level of a child. But he also here, and I just love that these are are close to each other, that he defines the value of one being immensely important to God. Because God cares about every one. God deeply loves Everyone, And you notice the shepherd in that story can only know that, that one is missing by counting everyone all the way up to 100. So it's not like when you found Jesus, you all of a sudden don't become important to God anymore. But there's a mission that Jesus is defining here, that his love is for everyone, the furthest out. And I like to visualize this stuff as best as I can. Um, so I wasn't able to find 99 goats or 99 sheep to bring up on stage with me today. Uh, so I wanted to show you kind of what 99 looked like. So here are 99 balloons. And let me just kind of bring them out here for us. I did use an air compressor to pump these up. So it's not full of my stinky breath, (laughs) in case you're wondering.
trying not to pop them with my, uh... oh, don't you go wandering off now. Don't do that. Catch my pun there. Let me try and not trip over these things. Here's what 99 looks like. Picture these people that are already found by God. It's exciting. Jesus is the shepherd in this story. And again, I don't want you to miss the fact that the shepherd still counted the sheep He knew and cared for these ones. This isn't a one versus the 99 thing. But Jesus leaves what we consider to be most important, and maybe in this gathering that we're in, the front of the stage might feel most important to you or to us, but Jesus leaves what we consider the most important to find the one that's missing. It's his mission to seek and save that which was lost. And he actually invites us to that mission too. So Jesus heads to the alleyways, he heads to the dark corners, he heads to the unexpected places, he heads to the cheap seats, to the nosebleeds, he heads to the back row. For the one. Now for the rest looking around, because you don't know where I'm at right now. Some of you are looking back here, wondering how weird this is that I would come to the back when it seems like the front is the most important. That might be like what the 99 felt like too. Because you can't, some of you see where I'm at right now, but we're a little bit smarter than actual sheep, aren't we? we can actually help find the missing balloons. We get the privilege actually of heading to the corners and heading to the the nosebleeds, to the spots, to the people that think that they're not good enough to be loved by God. Because no one is higher than the other. There's no privilege in this room. There's no rank and file. We're just sheep who have found the shepherd And we're invited into that mission too, but the heart of this talk today is if you find yourself feeling lost, whether you're online and you can't see me anymore or you're sitting here in this room, if you find yourself in the back, if you find yourself wandering spiritually, If your life feels like a big mess right now, I have good news for you. Jesus has a special heart for you. The story tells us that Jesus left the 99 on a hill. And I think he did so to seek and find and save you. So I want to take a minute together. I'm just going to finish my sermon up here for you to close your eyes for a second. 
Jesus left the 99 for, for you. And I'm hoping that for some that are listening, um, maybe this silly way to illustrate this, make it click for you today. I know it's just kind of a simple idea, but I want to invite you to, to close your eyes. And if you feel like you've been the one wandering, the invitation today for you is to be found. To think God so loved the world that even while we were sinners, even while we were in the midst of the things that caused the brokenness, he came down out of love for us. So if, if you, with your eyes closed, if you find yourself, um, I'm not, I never want to make anybody do anything weird like this, but if you, if you find yourself wanting to be found today, just in your head and in your heart, you can say yes to that invitation. Because I believe Jesus is saying in this passage, and the rest of scripture attests to it, that the love of God is running after you. That no matter where you've wandered or what you've done, God's love for you is great. And there's no level of greatness that you have to achieve in order to be loved by the one who's running after you. So if you want to say yes to that invitation today, you can just do that silently yourself. And I believe that the surrender of your will will begin to show something fresh and beautiful and new in your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your your humility and willingness. You, you are the greatest conceivable, conceivable being. You're the greatest of all time. You're the strongest, the smartest, the most loving, the most compassionate, the biggest, the smallest in some beautiful ways. You, you are actually the greatest. And yet, in humility, you came to us in the form of a baby at first that would grow into a person that suffered along with us in this life in order to show us that each one of us is like a sheep that wandered away and you are like a good shepherd that chases us down in order to bring us back to the family in order that we would know that you are like a good, good father and there's no distance too far that's the thing that's really cool is it doesn't matter what's coming to mind for any of us right now. You, you're willing to go there for us. So we love you, Lord. We worship you. And we say yes. If you think we're lovable enough to chase us down, then we receive that invitation.